Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 107 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Groove the No Treble Podcast. Bobby Wooten III, how are you? Great, I'm great. So happy to be here. So we need to start off with what will be an elephant in the room. So we're going to, because it's a bass podcast, you're not related to Victor Wooten or the Wooten family. I am not, I am not. Though I come from a gospel music family in Chicago. Yeah, it was really interesting when I started looking into your history. It could have easily been that there was some relation to you and the Wooten family. No, it's true. And I actually, uh, I even did a show one time with Victor back when I was in college with my band, Snarge. Uh, we opened up for him and we talked and we tried to figure it out. And then, you know, just the no connection. And that's okay, too, because obviously he's a huge inspiration for me. It's amazing to me to have these conversations with bass players and musicians over the past decade, because it really is one story is you have these bass players that it's totally in the family. And the other ones where it's so strange, but usually it's more like I'm sitting in a garage and I was the only one left out. And so they just passed me the bass. But what makes your story so fascinating to me is that it's multi-generational. It goes back to your grandfather and the Wooten Choral Ensemble. But crazily enough, your dad actually played in Jamaica Boys with Marcus Miller. That's insane. And that's the real reason why I play bass too. I guess it's a twofold. It's part with the first thing you said of the oh, we got one more, let's play the bass. Because for me, it was one time my friends were sleeping over and we were getting into Blink-182 and no one played the bass. Somebody played guitar and drums, so I was like, I'll pick up the bass. But definitely like when that happened, it was kind of my dad with Marcus and that was the very first connection of like check out bass players and, and all this like that. And so, I mean, Marcus was pivotal for sure. How old were you when that was happening? Do you have real memories of it? Did you appreciate what Marcus was doing or did it just seem like, well, that's another musician doing what musicians do? No, I mean, there's no, without my dad, I'm definitely not me. So he looks up to Marcus so much and Marcus is a huge part of his life. They're born on the same day. Yeah, it was kind of like once I started to play, maybe, you know, it was Blink-182 for a little bit, but then it was like, you know, here's what a bass player can do, is capable of, and took me to see him live, you know, numerous times and stuff. So very young, there was always, uh, I mean, even probably before that, it was like, let's pay attention to music. So there's one thing when you're exposed to music at such a young age, because it's the family business, essentially. But it's another when you first find yourself attracted to what the bass is and how it plays. It's such a unique instrument in that instance, most people are attracted to the singer, the song, the guitar player, a drummer. It's not usually the bass player. When did you start noticing that there's actually something with that low end that is very attractive to you from just a general interest? You know, if I'm going to even go like further back, I could probably take that to the first instrument I learned was piano. And the way I was taught specifically for my dad and then really my grandfather. But it's kind of, there's you know, what chord is going on, what three notes are in your right hand, but then what bass is going on in your left, like what single, and with those four voices, and then you go choral, and it's a four-part choir, you know? So it was very conscious of like, especially when I was learning 
gospel, but also like Stevie music was huge and everything. You know, taking a chord and if I take a C, but then wherever I put the bass, if I play if I play a D in the bass, that's a whole different chord than just the C triad. So I think I was like, I was definitely conscious of the role of just like the function of what the lowest note in a chord, how that is really what spells out the chord. Yeah, and then I think eventually that progressed into like I want to learn musicians. First, it was I wanted to learn songs. And maybe artists a little bit. And then it was like, well, who are the musicians behind it? And then, you know, becoming fascinated by that. And then that taking you on the rabbit hole. Of, I really like this player. Let me study this player's music. So we know Marcus Miller. But what journey was that for you in terms of bass players? Was it going just down the road of musicians that were popular at the time and songs you liked and who's playing bass? Or did you find yourself seeking out particular bass players and how they operate or asking people, what are the bass players I should be checking out? I can do this. Blink-182 into Flea and Red Hot Chili Peppers into all things Motown and Stevie and, and, and all that. And then into Pino Palladino. Enter him with John. First, it was John Mayer Trio for me. And then it was like, that was one of the first times I think of an album that came out while I was, I want to say this probably, but came out while I was live that had the bass player's name right on the album. Right. And so, and it was a very like, so check this out. And then after that, like, uh, soon I'm like, oh, then D'Angelo. I went down, I mean, Pino, who I got to meet recently, I was so excited. So cool. Um, but it was a very like, by the time I'm in high school, I was very like, do I want to sound like Pino when he plays with Steve Jordan or Pino when he plays with Questlove on this gig? And it was kind of like, that was my first ushering in in a way of, Oh, there's a way when the drummer plays like this, then I can play like this. Or how do I, you know, the balance of that, which is, you know, pivotal, I think, as like a bass player's role in a, in a band. Pino is one of those players that I often talk about, and I've seen him live so many times, and I'm older than you. So for me, it was more like the older days of the 80s and when he was first getting known for that fretless sound. But it's unique in that he's a hard person to replicate because of how behind he almost is in the beat. And I think that when you can understand it and see it, it changes dynamics very much as a player. You know, it's one thing when you think about Jacko and him being so ahead and leading versus Pino. I mean, it's almost like he's not playing with the drummer. It's such a strange thing, but he totally is locked in. Absolutely. There's a certain weight to his playing that is like, I want to sit back and I want to play heavier and I want to play like... um and not in like an aggressive way, but more of just like, it's like almost a calm way. Even when he does like quicker things, let's say, but there's still, there's just a calmness to his playing that's like really nice versus somebody who's like, yeah, Jocko, that boy, which I love, but it's a, it is a very different thing when it's more like a dancing around. Then I'm a, I'm a ballet dancer for a little bit versus, I don't know, an offensive lineman or something would be Pino. I mean, look, I was a huge, still am a huge fan of the hoop. And so John Entwistle passes and they bring in Pino and you couldn't choose a more diametrically opposed player. <laughs> and I remember even when it was announced, I thought, how is this going to sound when he plays My Generation? All of these songs that are somewhat even syncopated to these amazing tapes and loops that they were using at the time. Yeah. And it, it speaks to the breadth of his. He's so dynamic as a player. It's insane. Yeah. And actually, when, when I just did that rabbit hole down the progression... I will definitely say Marcus too, because I, I, I want to like, at that time, his like live 
Oh, Ozeal, I believe the name of the yeah. album is. I obsessed over that. That was the first, like, I think if you ask my friends and me playing at, like, that time, high school, Bobby, it was, like, much more, like, solos, and I wanted to be, there was a playing me that wanted to be, like, the lead player a little bit more than, more than today, than, like, uh, I, I think today I gravitate towards more, like, uh, the songwriting and production, and so I'm thinking more in that mindset, yeah. you know, but, like, uh, in terms of the bass. Back in high school, I mean, I just talked to a musician that I grew up with that he was much older than me, but he took me around and stuff. And he was like, man, I used to, when we play back in the day, I'd be like, oh man, you keep playing like that. You ain't going to get hired. <laughs> but it was just because I was like, you know, I wanted to do a lot. It was kind of, it, it's a younger, you want to show some things off, I guess. But I think when you love music, and this is something I'm realizing as I get older, you see the influences when you're younger, but you're still somewhat trapped in the genre of your friends or your world. Like I was a hard rock metal type of dude. But at the same time in the 80s, I was a victim of top 40. So Mark King and level 42 and all of these bands where the bass was so there. And as I started playing, you know, Jacko's album had been out already a decade plus, but it still felt very fresh to me. But then you had people like Billy Sheehan, you had people like Getty Lee, you had these players. And it was very similar. If you wanted to play in a band and they were doing Beatles covers or Blink-182, whatever it might be, it felt like you're overplaying. But I just saw it more like you're trying to figure out what this thing can actually do. Yeah. And because it's so new as an instrument and because it was so derivative of just being this place that sat between the drums and the guitar. I think that we're still at the very early days of it. And Marcus Miller is a great example. And so is Pino of people who really thought there's more that can be done with this to add to what a song is. Absolutely. Yeah. And then like, and then I think um, if you're as bass player and as like sideman to various projects, then there's times when you put on this hat and there's times when you put on that hat. And, and it's also, and it's a maturity about like knowing when to do, you know, each of those things. And that, yeah. that and that's also fun too. You're supposed to, I think you're supposed to like explore. You're supposed to go past boundaries. That's just all mental, anyways and stuff. But you serve the music, and so I, as long, if that's like the goal, then then I think you're good. What I think is so interesting about every bass player I speak to, and you are very much symbolic of it as well, is here you are playing these tunes. You also have this influence of Marcus Miller and Stevie Wonder. And then you decide, I'm going to do this. So you start playing stand-up bass. You go to college and study jazz. It's similar to me where bass was the primary for you. It's a bit of a leap, that. And I'm wondering how difficult or easy of a decision that was. And how did you feel studying in school? I remember being open to it, but here I am gigging on the side and wanting to play rock songs. But I'm studying standards. I'm studying walking baseline. I had to embrace the pedagogy of it. And it yeah. wasn't easy for me. I wonder what it was like for you. I suppose I've always been studious. So the idea of like now, I mean, I always learned from people as well in the way that they did it, whether it was particularly like my dad was always around and for sure. And then my grandfather was the one who actually gave me piano lessons. Bass was the only one that I I didn't take any lessons until college. So that was kind of, in a way, too, that was like Bobby's playground. And so it's like, you got piano, and I'm still studying piano with them, but it was like bass, I get to do whatever I want. And then I go to college, and, and I guess for me, mindset-wise, was kind of, I wanted to do music. And I knew I always wanted to write and produce as well, but it was kind of, I was really, you know, bass kind of, bass took over. Once I was doing it, it was like, 
that yeah i was playing bass more than piano at a certain point in high school it was kind of like oh yeah i want to do music and so yeah jazz school seemed to be the thing and i and i did obviously it was marcus miller i love i love jazz music so i go and the very first thing one of the reasons that i went to indiana university was because jeremy allen was there and when i met him at the audition his background too was like played electric bass first then transitioned to playing double bass and i'll never forget because one of the first things he told me he was like what you play is a guitar and what you're about to learn is a cello and it was and that was the very first throw all the technique that you have and throw that out the window and so year one of me freshman year was all i did was shed the fundamentals of upright bass and it was cool because that was the first i mean akin to piano but now i'm like 20 yeah i mean i'm like 18 years old versus learning techniques on piano when you're like i don't know six or something so now i'm like i've got this very like approach that i'm like doing week by week that was practice room just eight hours a day whatever it was that entire freshman year just to learn a new instrument and then functionally it's similar but then that's when enter a new gateway of bass players to learn from and freshman year was a very through other actually older student bass players kind of showed me ray brown and oscar pettiford and those two particularly were like <laughs> probably the next four years <laughs> it was me obsessing over i mean other people definitely israel crosby as well but like it was kind of you know i just want to learn everything i think you and i were inverse because when i studied music post-secondary my reading and theory was not there so it was really hard Wow. And it's funny because our my primary was actually electric bass, and my teacher Vic Angelilo, who's a legend up here in jazz, and has gone and passed away, just legendary. That was the hard thing for me. So what they would do is give you that sheet of music and come back next week, and I'd basically try to memorize it, faking it, you know, marking it depth and everything. Go into the lesson, start playing it. You take the paper and flip it upside down and go, "Now play it." Like, oh, I'm screwed because <laughs> I couldn't really. <laughs> wow! 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 Yeah! Wow! I, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, that would be interesting. That's a whole other, right, a whole other have thing. That part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I because I remember for me in in terms of that, like, I guess I was certainly I knew I was fortunate that church there's no music as I'm growing up, and then I'm in band though, and I'm playing clarinet, and also in piano lessons I'm reading piano, and so bass no teacher, but that was like then I started doing the jazz band in in high school, and it was just taking knowledge and now applying it to the bass, and so yeah. I didn't have that. I didn't have that that particular obstacle. But were there other electric bass players, both peers or teachers around? How were they talking about the instrument in terms of career, professions, opportunities? What was it like? Okay, so two things for that. Yeah, there was I, I the very first week I got to school, I watched an older bass player at the school, his name is Phil Rungi. And basically then the way he sat on upright, I was like, Oh, I just want to sound like that. And he was the one that was like Here's Oscar Pettifer. He was very, took me under his wing. And so there was that of just like Pierre and he was the, the gigging bass player. There's a few others, but they would get all the gigs. And so I suppose my kind of sophomore year on, then maybe I joined that club of I'm getting the calls now. And I also remember, I think this is like pivotal for me and my teacher, Jeremy Allen, commented on it when I left the school. But my freshman year, I go in there and a bunch of juniors in the program reach out and they wanted to jam with me. And they had this idea for this group, which would eventually be called Jip Jop. And it was like this hybrid of jazz and hip hop. And that would kind of progress like the whole four years I was there of just like, I have an original project that we work on and we play all these gigs and stuff. And then also 
enter another group with three of two my age, one a year younger, but it was called Snarge. I commented on it earlier because we opened for Victor one time. That was like this hybrid, we don't really like to say jazz, but two saxophonists and drums and bass and Ben Lumsday and Josh Johnson and Justin Lorenzi. I had that group too. And so I had these original projects and also like wanted to produce and so produced one of the Jip Jop records and then basically those things are like in part of my education are in conjunction with the school education but then I'm also like booking gigs and we're doing tours and stuff and so when I left I remember that Jeremy being like loving that there's the traditional path of like being a bass player Simon but he's like but you you have your projects and everyone that speaks to you knows what brings you the most joy and so always continue the original you and to like push that really that's like taking me far if you just learn it's kind of like yeah you learn the school lessons then you learn the street lessons as well and i was doing that in conjunction and could ask questions could fail a bunch as we all should and st- and you know i still do and so yeah that was kind of how i guess i it was it was great like my peers i'm still those especially those two like my age like josh and dustin and ben were still like all in music and all talking and stuff and so i learned just as much from them as i did from all the teachers and which was also as you're telling the story, Bobby, it's really interesting to me because what you're saying is actually what college should be and for most people isn't. Most people go to college and they study and then they start looking for work. There was something in there where their gigs started happening and where that transition to like, can I be a professional and make a living at this was validated while you were still at school. And so that's like a really unique place to be. You're very lucky. Yeah, absolutely. I could also say that I probably don't have that vantage point or those opportunities even. They asked me to to jam with them. Like older students asked me to jam with them my freshman year. That's just like luck and circumstance. The other Snarge was more like we started that group. But now as a professor, I definitely make sure that, you know, it's it's on you. Like all these resources are here, but it is on you and no one is there especially when I graduated, like I stayed at home for two years before I moved to New York. And I remember that being really kind of his grad school years, two years of grad school for me, where I was creating the curriculum. And I would be like, there's no boss here to tell you when a deadline is due. So it was very much like I set my own goals daily, like all this stuff. And if I didn't like hit them, I mean, I was kind of tougher on myself than maybe people should be. But if I didn't like when I was making music each day, if I didn't like what I did or didn't meet goals, I would like sleep on the couch and be like, this isn't, don't get comfortable. This isn't your apartment in New York, you know? And so when I'm telling my students now, like it's on you and like there was one who wants to be a music director. And so I'm at the Clive Davis school, which is, you know, song, pop music and it's writers, producers and on the business side and journalism side. And one of the students, fantastic musician, he wants to be a music director. And he was like, so how do I get in? And I was like, man, you have, all the the world's next artists are all of your friends right now. Direct every single one of their projects. They all need a live show and to direct all that. And it's like, and really it's just like, you could do it now. That to me is like a no brainer of just like leading to ample amount of opportunities in the future. But it's, yeah, it's about taking advantage. Always it's about taking advantage of like what you have right in front of you. It feels also like when you're competent and more, it's really about the network. I mean, that's the thing. I, I mean, I believe it for myself. There was a very famous sales book author, Jeffrey Gittimer, who talks about your network is your net worth. And I always believe that as a person. And I see it in these conversations every day because the one gig leads to the other, leads to somebody remembering you, leads to them wanting to use you again. 
there is something beautifully incestuous about it almost. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, at a certain point, everyone's talent gets to a certain level. And then it's about who you just want to spend, if it's tour, who you want to spend four months with. If it's anything else, it's like who you also enjoy being around and have like a deeper connection with. Those relationships are like, they're everything for sure. They're, <laughs> um, uh, and the, especially that's why I think I cherish to the ones like from college and then early career. And it's awesome to see. I'm going to throw out some famous names of people you've worked with from Machine Gun Kelly and Rick Ross to Jennifer Hudson, J-Lo. A lot more work with people like Carly Rae Jepsen, David Byrne. There are others. And I'm saying this not to just rattle through your resume and your portfolio, but there also comes a time when you start getting those bigger calls. What was that first big call and how did it help you move forward? I get the placement with Jennifer Lopez and Rick Ross, and this was the end of like the first year of me moving to New York, but it has nothing, <laughs> it has nothing to do with me moving to New York at all. And it was a remote session that I did with one of my best friends, Jake Troth, and he's a fantastic songwriter. And I never was in the studio with Jennifer Lopez or Rick Ross, and I didn't even know when it was done. It was like, oh, this is coming out next week, and that's how I sort of found out. And I guess the point I want to make, though, is like, so that happens. But I think the following year or the, or the next year is when I get the David Byrne call from another, again, like one of my person means a lot to me, Michael Aarons, and he's a music contractor here in New York. The Jennifer Lopez, Rick Ross, great. But the David Byrne, then it's like, I'm in the room with him and I'm working closely with him. And then when I go on tour with him, it's like, now I'm living with him. And that's when like the real friendship sparks. And so to your point earlier about like it being relationships, the amount of work that I've like, David has really taken me under his wing. And the amount of work that like he has referred me to or called me for is like so much versus just like, I mean, when you do like a one thing and, and that's great always, but it is like, um, there's a lot more like life and maybe it could be more fruitful. It's just the relationships that you have and stuff. And so I would say David, for sure, that was kind of a big launching off point, I suppose, because it definitely made me extremely more visible as being on stage on a Broadway. It ends up being a Broadway show and, you know, I'm on stage every night for like a two different six month runs. And so, yeah, I guess like that, I kind of consider that. I mean, I also was like, doing commercials and then ended up doing the empire tv show as like a writer producer for a couple seasons and that was like huge too and that was before david but um so you get a call from david byrne talking heads well-known artist but not an artist that everybody knows or liked or followed some people come to them later i definitely came to talking heads later even though i was around during the 80s when it was really really happening were you a fan? I mean, you, you know his name. Did you know his music? What were you thinking? Like, why were you thinking, well, why me? <laughs> <laughs> it, was the, it was actually the same thing. That friend that I did the Jennifer Lopez song with, Jake Trot, he was the one who first played me Stop Making Sense. And I remember watching it. And I just remember David's dance moves. And I was like, well, I guess if, it was on, if I was on stage next to him, I would just be doing exactly like he's doing. Because it's very... Very foreign in the way that my body would naturally moves, I would say. And I remember just having that experience. It was like in awe of the music. It's one of those things where you always want to be inspired by music. And it's cool. You know, when, when I'm a kid, that used to be like, 
all the time. I would hear something new. My dad would show me. He would show me. Yes, he would show me Earth, Wind, and Fire. He would show me all these things, and I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. But you know, for as you get older and older, maybe that happens less frequently. Uh, maybe just you know, for me or for whatever. But it wasn't until college when I see Stop Making Sense, and that was like a, I mean, everything. It was like the visuals. That was just a really cool thing, and and then I just took it. I took it as that. I didn't even necessarily do like, let me do a Talking Heads deep dive. I just kind of was like, oh, this is cool. And so then when I do get that call, which first was from, again, from Michael Aarons, who was like, David had a different project. It was a musical called Joan of Arc. And so I got asked to play that. And so then I've like listened to all things Talking Heads for the, until then. But uh, yeah, I didn't even do like a deep dive, but it was just more of like, a, oh yeah, I'm like fascinated by that. And I thought it was like extremely cool when I did see it. But it yeah, to your point, it was kind of, that wasn't the old, one of the older artists that my dad introduced me to. So I got it later and then I got it deeper like later and you know later in life which is cool too there's something magical about timing luck location too you get called in in 2018 for this joan of arc project which if you're a fan of david's you might remember for the vast majority of the population not so much but then you get called for america utopia which becomes this massive breakthrough from a production from what it is from having an artist like that do a broadway show to the performance and spectacle of it, to the minimalism of that show and what it is, to then it being filmed by Spike Lee and being released. That's my way of seeing it and connecting with it for the first time. It's a pretty amazing thing to think that something that might not have worked as well a couple of years ago now becomes this runaway thing. You have things like Springsteen on Broadway and other artists doing it, but it's amazing how all of these things are coming together at once and that happened to land even politically where the world was at. It's such a weird and interesting time. To speak on a, a couple things on that, like, yeah, for when it lands, like politically, even politically, there's a thing like, um, and I noticed this uh, when protesting 2020, the, the anthems that were like, the song anthems that were being sang uh, while we were protesting were all written like years prior. Yeah. Right. And so there's a thing about artists that they're often the most sensitive people and just and it's about being a part of it's being aware. And David's certainly one of those. And so, you know, we're doing that in 2018 when he, the only cover that we do is Janelle Monet's uh, song. And so um, how you talking about and it's more relevant. It's always relevant. Right. But now more more people are paying attention to it later. And it's kind of like it's a beautiful thing. With artists. Um, it's a powerful position and when and artists use it for to progress humanity is always great and then also though then just on the artistic side of it it's cool that you know Springsteen on Broadway which I didn't which I didn't see like on Broadway I saw the recording of it but that's the thing that was like written for Broadway which is cool too with American Utopia what I think was awesome was that it was that's a rock tour that is so different than anything that's been done before because we're all wireless and there's lots of choreography, et cetera, that it was then Broadway producers who saw the show and were like, this should be a Broadway show. And so that's kind of like, it's cool that it's like David served up a dish that's like, here, eat it. And it works in the wintertime. And also it works in the, in the summer. It's, that was never like the thing to go after. But yeah, then it's cool because then it's Broadway and then Spike Lee's recording it. And it's a whole, yeah, it's his whole life of its own, which is a, uh, Again, amazing thing, like as a creative to just you create this thing and then the world views it and enjoys it in different settings. What was unique about it is it could have been in a black box theater, 
when we think about Broadway, we tend to think about the Lion King or Spider-Man or whatever it is. There's something very unique about applying the word Broadway to what American Utopia was because it felt like it was done to strip away and to yeah. create a real connection between, I wouldn't even call it musician. I, I think there's a performing thing going on there that's well beyond just the musicianship of the songs and skills of the players. Absolutely. I mean, really, that, that show works because of our camaraderie. And then when you go into the Broadway version, which has more dialogue than the tour that did, part of what David was, the message he was going out was about human connection and how we're individuals and we're trying to find our way through the world. And it's, oh, yeah, it's like, no, we do crave connection to one another. And that's the thing that like really matters. And so, yeah, we're those are some of the most talented musicians in the world that I was fortunate enough to perform with. And there's that aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is that like, we're all up there enjoying each other on stage. And so that is kind of the glimpse into the bigger message and probably a thing that, you know, the world needs more of for sure. And to see that. And then the way you just articulated that a second ago, I just did a tiny desk for the first time. And I was thinking about With Post Malone. It was amazing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And, but just thinking about tiny desk itself, it's obviously it's like the MTV unplugged of today, but it's even more, it's you're getting artists that they make, we're making music in like studios and bedrooms and never performing them and just you know generally speaking and so what you do with tiny desk is now you like force just a super stripped down raw version of it and it's like it wouldn't even be the same that's why other like you online shows haven't taken off necessarily the same way colors kind of does something similar but here it's like no 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 get musicians and do this thing and so in a way of like where Broadway is this like bombastic and it's grand. And I also do Moulin Rouge, which is eye quite candy. extravagant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> eye candy galore. But then David's show was like, no, let's have intentionally stripped back. It's just people on a stage. And I'm going to surround you even with this is his genius because he's taught me a lot to think about art outside of just music. And like, we're all in gray suits. So there's no like the thing that has to happen is individuality based on like actual like facial and you know just like a person's character rather than like attire and then it's also gray everything's gray a steel chain that's gray because gray is the most neutral color and so you know these things that are just like oh man i don't even <laughs> my you know i never thought about things like that but it's awesome to be around and to learn from people that can connect those things for you because i learned so much choreography too now i'm like wow i think i might get inspired the most by choreography even though i barely understand like things but just from annie b parsons particularly it's like bodies in space and honestly I, I like that that's like a thing that i don't know the rules i don't know techniques i don't know anything but i enjoy it uh, for how it moves me now have you read the book by twyla tharp uh, the creative habit excellent i have not oh you this is it covers a lot of the themes that you're talking about right now and she's Obviously, classic ballet and just how she thinks about work and art. Yeah. It's called The Creative Habit, Twyla Tharp. It's funny. I love art and I love music. Dance is one of the ones that I've always struggled with, just never appealed to me from contemporary to ballet to whatever. And I read that book and it didn't get me more into dance, but it made me understand it as an art different than yeah. I did before. I wanted to comment a little bit on the Tiny Desk thing because it, it was amazing. You did it with Post Malone. It was so much fun. One of the things that I had not made the connection between that and the MTV Unplugged of our era, as I think that that's totally true. What I do find is 
that it seems to force the musicians to rethink their music. And the output of it to me is there's a lot of play and happiness mm. in the song, which is surprising because if you think about the world of music today, a lot of the conversation is around things like auto-tune, backing tracks, how much of somebody playing live, if they even have a band, is it simply triggers versus tapes? There's something so interesting about music fans and music today that you could go from that type of live quote-unquote performance, because there's a lot of questions about whether even some of these performances are actually even performances, to you actually see the artist playing, and there is a joy in that. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wish I could comment to this on like I've done several, but I can I can tell you like from from what I experienced uh, in that setting was Post has been he's been playing with a band on this tour. I don't yeah. I can't I don't know if it's like to click and and tracks. I imagine it is just in my right, experience. but historically for people who don't know, he would go up there to tape, and yeah. a lot of the vocals were being doubled. He was so, performing and singing, yeah. but there was a lot of doubling going on. I don't know this tour what's going on. He's an incredible artist, love his music. And I wasn't yeah. speaking in relation directly to him live versus oh, totally, I mean, in totally. general. Yeah, totally, totally. general like chaos out there. Totally, now. totally, totally. And I'm sure this applies. I've just have only done it one time. So I'll just speak yeah. from there. But like, yeah, like what I can say though is that the no tracks, the no click, there's automatically then it's like when click is there, you're relying, you got a machine that's right there that's like, here we are, here we are. And the machine is there. But when there's not that, now it's like you need the person to be like, here we are, and somebody else. And so it's listening, and that thing is always going to be, that person's going to be adaptive. And so there, there has to be a balance between one another. And I mean, I think, you know, like anyone that's grew up like playing music and the first time you get in a garage with your friends and just play, and there, it's like the leaning on each other is like so pivotal. And so... Now I'm just taking back to one story I had playing with Makai McCraven, who's like amazing drummer. And uh, I can't remember whose music it was, but it was very challenging. And I just remember like him being like, oh, yeah, good. He's like, oh, you're on the gig again. It's like uh, we could just lean on one another. And it is like, um, especially with bass and drums, but going back to Tiny Desk now, having that like freedom and stuff and post energy, like he just loved it. And so... I, you know, to say how joyous you, when you said it was everyone was joyous and, and mo a lot of artists, it seems that way. You're in a setting that's also like people work there. There's desks that are right there and you see all that. And also there's windows and they do it in the daytime. And there's probably all these settings that are akin to David choosing to do all gray for a reason that like bring that out. Cause if it was an, if it's a nighttime thing, it is a different thing, but you've got the sun right there. You got open window and you got people that have been working that are excited to hear live music in their office it's a very peculiar situation period so uh yeah it brings it out and and yeah the, the reliance on technology that is normally in music that especially with pop artists today that is like we want to hear what's on the recording more than ever before uh yeah that's like gone away and so i'm sure it's like for anyone that's spent when you create a song and you spent so many hours on it it can be extremely refreshing now to like do it in this vein and uh, oh, it's like, I do like the way when it's served like that. Just, when you explain it like that, Bobby, it just sounds like that's the environment where gospel thrives. It really is. I this mean, feeling of like communion where we're all together, right? I mean, that's that's what it is. Like when you take, yeah, it's great. It's great. It's, it, when there's no machines there, and I, and I like machines too. I'm about to play on them for a bunch today. But when that's out the picture, there is like, no, we have to, we have to do this thing together in a different way.
I think when I was reading about American Utopia, you had said that there was some stuff that was to click, others that weren't. But to speak to what you were saying about locking in, it was also unique in that there were six percussionists slash drums. Yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. And even by the time we started to lock that show in, I mean, those, they became like a full unit where they are a drum machine and they're communicating just like perfectly with one another yeah. as if they're like different limbs, which is an incredible feat. And by the time like that's locked in, because we were all in here, there's no stage volume at all. So nothing in terms of my in-ear mix, it never changed at all, you know? So then I could get it really dialed in. And if I didn't start a song without drums, like I didn't have click in my ears because I just like, I don't need it because I got them and stuff. And so I would rather play with, I like deviations, you know, in time. I don't like, I like, I like playing with time, if anything. So if I don't have to hear the click, I don't like, uh, if, if I could do that at Moulin Rouge, I definitely would, but I, I would, that would involve me changing the volume of the click each song. And I'm okay doing that. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to. We talked about uh, Marcus Miller. We talked about Ray Brown. We talked about Oscar Pettiford, some other players. Are there players who influence you now that weren't those types of players? Are there new influences you find on bass? Are there songs? Are there things that really spark your rethinking of the instrument? Right now, yeah. You know what probably happens now from... There's like... Okay, let's say Carly Rae Jepsen. There's songs that are clearly it's like keyboard bass but on that gig i'm just playing electric bass i like when it's like i would never have played this if it was on electric bass i would only play this if i was playing key bass right. and so it's cool then to like adapt that to there and then i'll take that even further because right now i'm like head down deep in all things neptunes because i'm creating a class for clive davis on on their productions and that is all like synth bass but also what a amazing thing that they do is they use a lot of melodic instruments in just rhythmic ways and rhythmic instruments in melodic ways so as i'm learning these like parts like that it's like it's great because it's it's their productions they have a flow to it that's like a melody will just transfer from instrument to instrument in these like in these just infectious groove phrases and so that's like a whole other i take it as like yeah part based but then i've part big picture i've always been like very big picture so for me like now probably even more so i'm very like i like musicians that like play songs and play for the songs and stuff and and then myself too so so were the neptunes your choice to bring in or was that just part of no that's that's me yeah i kind of this honestly the same way that i attacked the bass in a way where it was like you know, first Blink-182 and then it's, and then it's Flea and then it's Motown and then it's Marcus and whatever. And like Marcus and Pino probably, Pino sends me on like, let me just learn like him with yeah. this and him with this. It's nine million genres. Yeah. Same, same thing with production. So like, as I'm learning or, you know, practicing, I'll say it was like, let me just make a bunch of things that sound like the Neptunes. Let me make a bunch of things that sound like Diplo or, or whatever. And like, I would do that for like, six months or three months or whatever and so I, it, I would study it in the same fashion as if because it's a language and so now as like as a professor and thinking what i could add i was like oh this would be we could dive deep on like neptunes and so this will be the first one that i have like in this series that will study various producers so you do a lot of music direction you do a lot of composing you're doing a lot of teaching 
Do you see it as bass first? Do you see it as music first? Do you think in bass lines? How do you relate between this instrument that you love and the myriad of work that you're doing out there in the music world? I think overall, I see it as like music. I see like big picture like that because I think like what I, I love like songs and I love harmony and I love, I love that. And then I love with what each instrument can do within that. I would say like piano and bass would be the ones that I can kind of play bass like, you know, definitely I'll say. And then it's kind of, you know, now I have like, I play with so many people that it's like when I want this guitarist or et cetera, and I know kind of what their voice is but, and what they can add too, because I love just to be wowed by people and stuff. I, I guess the best way to be like, I start ideas, maybe mainly at piano, maybe. Or no, I don't know how to say that because sometimes it's <laughs> drums, sometimes it's piano, and sometimes it's bass. So it's music. Yeah, it's music. It's music for me, and I and I like and I love it for all that. I love like you know learning different things and how to play with it and, and everything. I usually hold back from talking about gear on the show mainly because I don't play that much. I just love the instrument and I love speaking to people who play the instrument because I feel like their stories are never told at scale like they should be. Bobby, you're a great example of that. But I fell in love with a certain type of bass a while back. I had the pleasure of going and give keynotes for the business side of my work at places like NAM. And I actually have a business partner who's a bass player and picked up a Sarek bass. And I was at their booth and I met him and we hung out. And of course, to my wide smile and not just loving your performance in American Utopia, but I saw, oh man, Bobby's playing a Sarek bass. That's crazy. Yeah, love that bass. One of the most like enjoyable basses for me to play. You like like my basses? Like I love they have personality, and I love my relationship with them. So that bass to me, it's kind of what's cool is that in my journey to eventually getting to short scale basses. I was gonna say that's the big thing is people yeah, don't know that yeah. they only do short scale exactly. So and that's like a five string short scale. So then I'm like yeah. even like now I'm like going deeper, right? But when I got really like. So I bought a Harmony H22 and that was, I bought that before the American Utopia tour to use there. And that was a medium scale bass. And it was, I was like, oh, wow, this just, I, for whatever reason, it had never gone through my head to maybe try like a shorter scale bass. And so my hands, which aren't Pino size, all of a sudden, like, cause there'll be times when like, I was like studying Pino and I'm watching live videos and I'm like, oh, I can't, I see how he's doing that. I just can't. I, you know, I physically can't ha- have it in the way that it's in his palm. And so at any rate, I get that and I'm like, oh, wait, now I kind of can. And then, and then it was really Tim LaFave was the one who put me on a Sarek. Oh, he's great. Yeah. So he put me in touch with them and then enter this space. And then it was like even shorter. And plus like that coral pink color on the one that I have. It's just, it's like a fun base. It works perfect with Carly for numerous reasons. And there's like that. That gives me that thing that I'm going to say the most fun. The harmony bass is the most like, oh, you're going to recognize that I'm my own sound sort of thing. And so when, you know, for the tiny desk and they wanted like, essentially it was like we played like slow down country versions of Post Malone songs. And so, and I was like, oh, I got to use the harmony. And so even though I was in, when I got that call, I was in LA and that film's in DC, I actually had... One of my good friends drove it down for me from New York and met me there and to bring that bass because that bass needed to be there. And there's like a, especially me as like producer, like I care about tones. I care about tones like a lot. And so 
all my bases, like each one that I have, they do very like specific things. And I'm 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 happy to talk a little on gear just because I think it's important for musicians today to oh, every single one, especially drummers too, because that's a little bit like harder to do, but to the ability to record yourself like well and to go yeah. after the studying of just like different tones on different things because as we just move more and more and like things are recorded and we're not going to big studios to do it and so there's a lot of work that i get where it's just i'm just sending bass stuff off and like yes i have studio gear and i can talk about that but you also don't need much past getting like like for for bass specifically a good audio interface with just like the preamp that's the most important thing anyways to like sound in general so it's just like if there's anything just invest in it's just like a good pre and then after that though it's like when you're studying bass and like it's like what to play and how to play but then also like search sounds and like and sonic design that way when people when you get calls and it could be for like records and stuff it's kind of like you know how to dial up certain tones that are like best for it not just like you know one stock sound that you have sort of thing we just came off of the two date weekend shows with metallica at the stadiums and one of the openers was this rejuvenated Pantera, which had Charlie Benante on drums from Anthrax. And the sounds were incredible. And I was digging around and it turns out that he locked himself into triggers several years ago, just because of the exact thing you're saying, where he is so confident that the sound is the exact sound that he's worked on his whole life, that he's learned to work with it and play and yeah, you know, people might go triggers. But like, he's one of the greatest living drummers, forget metal drummers of all time. And if he can do that with that tech, double bass, all this craziness, it speaks volumes to what you can do to lock in a sound. A hundred percent, absolutely. And I think it's again like big picture. Historically, we used to have like we could take Motown, this song, and Stevie Wonder has a version of it, and the Temptations have a version of it. And then blah, blah, blah does a version of this song. A song would exist in different recordings and forms. But today it's like, no, you just want to hear Katy Perry do that song. You don't, it's like Lady Gaga's not also doing that song. It's this recording. And I think as recording has just stepped up, it's like now the listener wants like that experience. So why not? When you go see something live, obviously like hip hop is the, probably the biggest of just like, it sounds exactly like the record and verbatim and pop a lot of pop music and so yeah i think that would make total sense that then drummers with triggers they're still playing but it's queuing up the exact sound that you know our ears now are accustomed to to listening to a particular thing and like i'm not here whether that's good or bad or anything like that but i'm just saying what it is and if like if you want to work i think that's like pivotal to just like get sounds and the world's changing. You have natural singers who sound like autotune because that's what influenced them. Like there's some weird stuff going on in the world for sure. It kind of ties into this idea of Serif basses in short scale. If you want to start a riot in an online bass community, just start a debate about four strings versus five strings versus six strings and you'll, you'll start a riot. Short scale in and of itself is also seen as you're sacrificing sound, tone, and all of this. I don't even believe that to be true. I'm guessing you've discovered on the journey too that not the case, or do you think that is the case, but it creates its own unique sound? I could hear differences for sure that like, but yeah, I think that it's its own thing. Like I know particularly on my Seric when I'm on the B string of just like, and it was really the sound guy of American Utopia 
Pete Kepler, who's great, who kind of like pointed out to me. And so I kind of knew when I had to like maybe play with the string to just raise it up a little bit. So I knew right. that it was like living there. I mean, there's certainly like I can't take away from like scientific things in design of like we know a lower the longer a, a string is and the thicker and it's like how you need like certain amount of length to it right so so there there is that but i don't get caught up on things like that that's cool for that's what it is and that's why like again i said like each of my bases have their own personality like i'm not bringing my Sarek to like an r&b recording session <laughs> i'm bringing my pence sir and I, and they in these things like that and so that's kind of you know i love each one for for who they are i suppose yeah before we quit i'm curious about projects you're working on what the next six months to a year looks like people like you tend to be exceptionally busy so i think you're somewhere then i see on instagram you're somewhere else what's your schedule like all right so i got uh the song i produced for this artist toby comes out that i worked on with alex goose i've got a tv show that i'm music supervising and producing they're doing a pilot episode and i'll be on amazon it's called hip-hop world i've got i've got some dates with carly I'm at Moulin Rouge. I got some recording sessions with David. Yeah. I'm trying to make Exciting. things happen, really. Yeah. It's a good schedule. And then teaching, which is like Tuesday will be my lecture day. And, I, and I'm really enjoying that as well. Curious what some of the topics of the lecture are. So I teach all music production there. And so one of it is it's like a general music production class for sophomores, all things that that in, entails that uh, Nick Sanzano and Bob Power, they wrote that class. So I'm kind of like, go from under them and then and then you know in my own way and then yeah i'm so right now creating this class on the neptunes that i'm excited about because it, it, it honestly touched on so many of the things that we talked about even earlier i was thinking about like how you can do you don't need much to do anything especially today but like i bought a triton keyboard because they used all of their productions yep. are from that one keyboard and that's why it's like especially today you just need a laptop and so there's just so much you can do um, or you need one base, you know, and so and to just have fun with it, really. So it's like a lot of, you know, lessons I'm learning myself and stuff and just enjoying it, too. That's great. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for your time. I love going down these rabbit holes with incredible artists and musicians. Let people know where they can best connect with you online or where you're hanging out. I'd say Instagram at Bobby Wooten three. And then, yeah, that's probably best. My website, Bobby as well. That's awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Mitch. It was great. Uh -huh.